0: So, Monique, welcome to Scotonomics and thank you for coming onto our show um, to talk about bank desertification. In fact, it was reported this morning that the TSB will be closing nine out of uh, nine of its uh, branches, uh, Scottish branches, as should say. And, however, this has been an ongoing process since 2008 and it's been most especially affecting more remote areas of scotland where we hear of our elderly folk queuing in the rain for mobile banks however this bank desertification is now affecting more populous areas so you say in your common Dream, dreams article that politics and special interests are keeping the u.s postal service from becoming an affordable banking service is the u.s postal services st- postal service still in the public sector then Monique
1: yes it is that is one advantage we have over you in the UK and Scotland is that at least technically our postal service uh, even though it operates a bit like a company like a private corporation is definitely still publicly owned um, but it is being gutted a little bit from the inside through outsourcing um you know so there's sort of backdoor privatization but the the, the um, you know the, the delivery itself and, and the, the, the main you know it's still
0: publicly owned. So you suggest that if the US Postal Service started undertaking banking duties, this could actually be economically advantageous for them rather than onerous. And why do you say that, Monique?
1: Well, the main reason is that they have all these post offices. And I understand that in the UK, you have the post office, which was spun off of the Royal uh, Mail, and that they have banking services. And for the same reason, if you already have to have post offices in every town and neighborhood, um, which is more or less, I mean, there's, there are more post offices than McDonald's, than all even fast food franchises put together. So even little towns that have nothing else going on, they have a post office. And so they have wow, to that's an
2: amazing start. That is an amazing start for us looking at America. <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, it's amazing. So they I, they do have to have post offices everywhere. And it, it's also super popular. Everybody loves the post office. Rural areas love the post office, especially, which is one of the reasons why, even though the United States has become very politically polarized, we're not polarized around the Postal Service. Very popular. Everybody, you know, when they, there's a lot of pushback when they try to close any of these branches. Now, if you're already staffing a bank branch and they are already doing Financially sensitive things like they already do a little bit of financial stuff like they you can um, post money orders and things like that. And we have a highly trained, you know, clerks uh, working at the Postal Service, very, very trusted. Um, These are good jobs by and large by American standards, which is not a very high standard. But nonetheless, you know, people don't want to lose these jobs. People trust the, the workers there. So you already have this infrastructure. And it wouldn't really cost very much more to do basic banking services on top of that, um, and, you know, beyond what's already there. And there is a history of that. The United States did have postal banking until 1968. So anyhow, so the thing is that once you've already got the overhead and you're already having to have post offices, which is a good thing, all over the, the place, you might as well offer some basic banking services, especially as other, you know, uh, commercial banks are falling,
0: uh, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not doing their jobs. So the U.S. Postal Service did... Do banking before it was discontinued in 1967 so why did that happen
1: well they you, they would argue that because of lack of demand you know as as uh you know basic it was very very basic in fact it was it was kind of old school it's quaint people would actually put stamps in a bank book you know as a as a savings mechanism um and so i think that the argument would have been that at the time that particular uh, model wasn't really you know was was losing uh you know, was, wasn't necessary people. And also there was a period when bank branches were everywhere. um, And uh, you know, and people, you know, it didn't seem to be uh, necessary anymore. Uh, But what we found is that it's more necessary than ever. I mean, we, we don't want to go back to the days when we're sticking stamps on a book, but we do want to go back to the days when you have face-to-face contact with a competent, trusted person who knows you in your little town, and uh, I mean, we still have a lot of these. Uh, you know, I used to work in a, in a very, very small town in, in rural Virginia, and the the postmistress, who only retired a few years ago, had been there for decades and decades. knew everybody. Um, you know, it was really hands on. She would have helped any older, other older people. You know, with whatever they needed. And I think that this is more, not less, necessary than ever because technology. You know, and trust. You know, the lat. You know the fears of technology and and rational fears of technology and and broadband access and all these other things make it very complicated for seniors in particular and rural people in particular uh, to access online banking and and all those services that people are so excited about. But I have, you know, I think are limited and so, you know, so I think that it's not less necessary. It's more necessary than ever to bring it back. And other countries maintain postal banking, as England did, and the UK uh, in general, you know, and, and other countries, Japan. I mean, there's many, many other countries that have maintained postal banking. Um, we can get into this later. But what really happened also is that uh, there was a uh, legislation passed in 2006 that severely limited what the Postal Service could do. So it was artificially constrained from expanding into these necessary services. Necessary, and by the way, you know, you could bring in some fees that would help the postal service to provide work, um, you know, and some, and, some revenue but the main reason I think it should be done isn't to provide
0: revenue for the postal service but to provide necessary services. It sounds to me as if the US government should have really invested in it then and and created a gold standard for the banking system with its postal services that would have held up the private banks to a gold standard I think they have that system in Germany as well and you've explained I was going to ask you about the what the regulatory framework is that's preventing this from happening You've you've explained that that Happened in 2006, so why is that happening? Why is that happening?
1: Well, there is a lot. I mean, so the 2006 legislation was mostly a disaster, and there hasn't been major legislation since then. Weirdly, there was some support from progressive, uh, you know, Congress people at the time for the legislation. It had to do with the fact that at the time, uh, deficit. Scares were big, and Congress. Now, I mean, the Republicans have shown they really don't care about deficits. But at the time, it was kind of a bludgeon for people, and the Postal Service had been overpaying for pensions. It's kind of a long story, but Congress wanted that money to keep flowing to the federal government in order not to show larger deficits. So they, so they kind of reached this compromise where they said, "Keep pouring money at us, but we'll at least, you know, cause it to be go towards retiree health benefits," and so. People got bamboozled into this and it turned out to be incredibly costly. And, and, and I don't know if it was done intentionally on the part of like, you know, people would be privatizers in the right wing, but what the effect of this, of of continuing to pour a lot of money from the postal service to the federal government, um, for these retiree health benefits was to make the postal service look like it was losing money, look like it was incompetent, look like it was backwards, even though it was super efficient, it was paring itself to the bone. It was outsourcing like crazy, but it had this huge overhead and at the same time that this was passed they also um there had been a lot and this was you know years in the making there had been a lot of back um behind the scenes lobbying by private competitors to limit what the post the services the postal services would do so it was enshrined in this act that the postal service could only do these limited and traditional services you know and, you know for example they could sell postcards but and photocopying very very limited and you know and in addition to that, there's a regulator that was established called the, the uh, Postal Regulatory Commission that just internally has this ethos of, of protecting the private sector at the expense of the public sector. So they really often, and they, they have leeway, but they tend to rule in favor of private corporations that say this is unfair competition. And as an economist, I can say that you want to worry about unfair competition when it will destroy competition, when it will n- do bad things to consumers. But in this case, there, you know, this is good for consumers. There's no consumer argument for limiting what the postal service provides. There's all this overhead, they, you know, it's it's not a it's not a competitive market. Um it costs very little to provide these services. It would be good for the postal service and good for the consumer. So there's really no reason to limit it, but it's in sort of enshrined in this legislation and in the regulatory structure beyond what the legislation demands.
2: Monique, you've just you've just then um, given us two two plays out of the privatization playbook there, which is what we are seeing in the United Kingdom with the National Health Service. And it is this, you throw loads of money at it, and then you see it's not working, which is evidenced that the private sector can do better. And then the second play is to say, well, actually, we're going to limit what you do, and we'll allow the private sector, and we'll give the private sector support to start stepping on your toes. And you were saying at the start that you're not sure if this was the plan or if it just happened, but I think I know what the plan would have been. It's, it seems to be similar to the, the, the privatisation you know, that's that's particularly, um, and as I'm sure you know, the United Kingdom is the, the global leader when it comes to privatization. But it seems to be the way to privatize services is by at least using two of those little tricks.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I want to clarify that there's no doubt that some of the privatization, the, the, what I call backdoor privatization, was intentional, was lobbied for, was the result of years of, you know, closed door, uh, you know, there, there are these advisory committees that are private companies that then just advise the Postal Service. Well, you can imagine what their advice is. There's also this, it's a very, very strange thing when it comes to different kinds of outsourcing. One kind of outsourcing, the Postal Service is almost required to uh, give the company that does the outsourcing the entire benefit of, you know, any cost savings. So the Postal Service doesn't even benefit from it. I mean, it's not even, like you could see a situation where they, you know, the 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 private, the outsourcing corporation, pays very poorly. And, you know, whereas the, you know, we, the the postal workers are unionized. And so where, I mean, it wouldn't be good for the workers, and I would not support this, but at least it would save money. But, it, you know, for the postal service, and this is not even happening because the entire, you know, uh, uh, save cost savings are rebated to these low wage outsourcing companies. So nobody wins. I mean, really, it's like it drives down, uh, you know, labor standards, Uh, It doesn't save the consumer money. It doesn't help the Postal Service. The only people who benefit are low-wage outsourcing uh, companies. So it it is a serious problem.
0: So you state as well in your article that many Americans face banking deserts and barriers to banking. Can you tell our audience more about this?
1: Yes. So people have tried to quantify this. And I think, you know, I think there are links in my article, if people look it up to, you know, attempts to say how many people are not within this many miles of a a post office. Um, I think that's important to show. I mean, I'm sorry, not a post office of of a bank branch. Um, But I think that there are more you can be if you don't have if you live in an area that has poor public transit, and uh, you don't have a car in the United States, you don't have to be in a rural area or in a neighborhood that's very, very far away. I mean, you could be 5 miles from a bank branch but it's incredibly inconvenient. And you know as we know if you use somebody else's um you know atm machine or whatever the fees are really high. So what we're seeing in the United States is the privatization of a payment system. So we people are increasingly paying just to access their own money, just to cash their own checks just to um you know just to n- not even to borrow or to do any things that we think of as you know, the value added by the banking service that they're supposed to allocate resource, you know, they're supposed to take your money and lend it out to some productive use and whatever. None of that. You are paying just to cash your government check or cash your paycheck. And um, and, and most notoriously, this is done by, you know, uh, these predatory companies like paycheck lenders, these little outlets that are everywhere in the United States, very, very high cost, where they don't even want people to pay off the loans. They want people there forever, you know, continue to pay, usually pay more than what they borrowed, you know, double that, you know, just continuing to pay. But even banks themselves increase a a larger share of commercial banks of the supposedly, you know, the the not sleazy, non-predatory banks are also getting, you know, a lot of their revenue now from overdraft fees, from ATM fees, from, you know, just people trying to access their own money. And so this is a real failure. It, the payment system and people's ability to access their own money should really be a public service. I mean, whether you can have debates about whether or not, you know, the uh, public sector should be allocating uh, loanable funds and maybe they should partner with private sector with credit units to do that. But when it comes to just people being able to access their Social Security check, I mean, it's ridiculous that they have to pay a bank to do that or worse, that they have to pay a, a check
0: cashing outlet. So when you're talking about banking fees in America, have you looked at the how they compare with other countries? Are they particularly erroneous in America in comparison to other countries? Actually, I, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but
1: they are very high. I mean, people who are unbanked or underbanked, people who are who underbanked means that you may have access to a bank, but you are still using check cashing outlets or other what they call alternative. It's a euphemism, but, you know, the predatory outlets the alternative financial services they pay you know often so there are people who are living off of you know ten thousand fifteen thousand dollars a year you know below poverty and they can pay ten percent of their income easily in you know to to these uh alternative financial services i mean that is just criminal that is like it, it's horrific i mean these are people who are you know who have food insecurity. i mean the, we do not have a robust as you probably well know, I mean, the United States is notorious for not having a robust social safety net. And then on top of that, we are allowing people to you know, be gouged by these exorbitant, you know, usurious, fees. and ironically, uh, you know, this is something that I used to study in, you know, back in the day, and I don't pay as much attention to, but ironically, in the old days, a lot of the very conservative southern states had usury laws that protected people because they were old-fashioned, and, you know, now they've mostly gone by the wayside, although there is still, you know, what we find is that if you compare across states, there's um, the, you know, this is not a competitive market, like, you know, the the check-cashing outlets, they don't, you can have them across the street from each other and they're charging the same fees. It, it does not reflect the risk of lending to people. It does not reflect the risk of opening these things. The, it's just a gotcha fee. Like they're just, you know, the, the, and you can see this by looking at um, across States that have different laws that they'll just abide by the law, but they have, you know, it's they make plenty of money even where they're somewhat restricted. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of indications. These are not competitive markets. These are gotcha, uh, you know, predatory markets.
2: Used- I really like that gotcha phrase that you used in the article. And I, I think so many that will resonate with so many people. And what you also said in the article is the is there to to not, you know, old old fashioned when they could say to you 20 years ago, you know, we didn't know you were going overdrawn and would cash that check. So you had there's you got okay fair you know whatever it is. But now it's like the technology's there, these these things should not should not exist. And um, these kind of got you got your charges. And, and you,
1: it's right? a it's a vicious circle, too, because what we found is that people who are unbanked or underbanked, who are afraid of get, often what happened is they got gouged and then they're like, well, I can't afford this. And you can imagine, you know, you're paying, you know, you know, you, you, you if you have no money in the checking account and then you're paying a hefty fee for an overdraft and then you owe on that, you know, you get yourself in worse trouble. And so a lot of people are just like, I can't deal with this. Um, you know they're living paycheck to paycheck hand to mouth which again the United States does not have a you know proper safety net you know social safety net a lot of people are they just decide that they don't want to have anything to do with banks so in it in I think that this is important it's not just people who for whom it's incredibly inconvenient to go to a bank branch but it's people who are afraid of banks and not just the predatory banks. Um, but they would trust the postal service and they would go to the postal service and they wouldn't the postal service wouldn't charge these fees now ironically the postal service right now is charging overly high fees for check cashing in a in a pilot program uh but i don't believe that it they're really you know the under the current leadership the postal service in the united states is genuinely trying to offer limited banking services they I think they're just going through the motions and then they're going to say oh it didn't work um so but they're right now we're in the middle of a pilot program to try to you know take very small baby steps towards Bringing back postal banking, uh, but the way it's set up, the fees are too high. The it's just check cashing. The check cashing the check limits are too low. It's not competitive. It's not helpful, and it's not being
0: used. Monique, you also state that um, these barriers disproportionately affect people of color. Why is this?
1: Well, I mean, I think you know, it, it, for all the reasons that you would expect, which is that people of color in the United States disproportionately are number among the low income. You know, you know, disproportionate. You know, they, they, for you know, for the usual reasons that that people of color pay more for services and you know are you know and and live in greater poverty, more isolation, live in areas that have Mm -hmm. more services. There is also, I mean, I think that there, and we think of African Americans for that, but I think that Hispanics also. You know, uh, uh, there are also document like one of the reasons that people have trouble accessing banking services is that they don't have the proper. Um, you know I- identification papers and stuff like that and that does, i'm not even just talking about people who may be working in this country without proper papers but there are a lot of older people older people of color hispanics and black who don't have the 15 different kinds of you know they don't they don't they may never even have had a uh, a birth certificate and so this is actually a, a a problem for voting which is also a postal related problem um it's a problem for you know um, it that crosses many, many boundaries that that there are a lot of people in the United States, especially older people of color, whose paperwork is not, you know, that there's slight anomalies or they're lacking some paper. And, you know, this has become an increasing problem. I I don't know about you guys, but I've been helping my parents who are not in that, they're elderly, but they're not in that situation, but just try to, you know, they moved recently into an assisted living. So just moving stuff around and having to enter 15 different passwords and you know being asked for random you know literally birth certificates just to to you know change their address on a bank you know that kind of thing i mean there's so many people for whom this is really really onerous um Mm -hmm. and it's you know it's meant to protect people against online fraud i don't but we're not really protecting people Against the things that really matter, but then we're making it really, really hard for people just to, uh, you know, open a or a bank account or change their address or I mean, I, I it's probably necessary, but it's one of the many reasons why not having in-person banks, uh, you know, with people who can help with that because not everybody has. I mean, I live very close to my parents, but not everybody has that. Um, and we're seeing it actually in a whole other world right now, which is you know that we've seen uh, our social security offices have been shut during COVID. And we saw this massive drop off in people being able to access disability benefits and things like that. So it really, really matters hands on, you know, face to face for people in poor health, people with low incomes, people, uh, you know, and especially seniors and especially in rural areas. Having a physical presence, you know, and predictable with people who are know you and are
0: looking to help you is Absolutely essential. I see yeah it's it's very clear from what you're saying that you know th- this situation that you have now and that we are having increasingly in Scotland now as well is this is this is interfering with your ability to participate in society and most especially to participate in your democracy. and you stated in your article that maintaining a secure monetary system that serves as a store of value, a system of accounts and a means of exchange is a quintessential government service. Um, are there any political champions in the U.S. for this cause? Yes. I mean, fortunately, you know, this has gotten gained steam. So
1: I think that, you know, I mentioned earlier that there's a pilot program for banking, but that's really just a not it's not really a pilot program it's a joke it's in four locations i talked to a post i mean one of them happens to be near my house i went and talked to one of the clerks there he said they'd had two people come and use it and but he he suspected that both of those people were just testing the system rather than actually availing themselves of of the of the of the, the thing so i mean we don't have postal banking um but uh but, there, the, but we've been, you know, there's more and more support on the Hill, as we call Congress in this, you know, and some of the people that have been highly associated with this are Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, Senator Bernie Sanders. So you guys probably have heard of these people. There are big progressive stars. Um, and uh, one person who's a centrist but has been very much behind this is Senator Kristen Gillibrand. Um, and then I another senator who may not be a a known name in the UK, but Senator Sherrod Brown, who's very progressive also. Um, And Sherrod Brown is, he's expanded his concerns, not just, he doesn't just want the post offices to provide basic banking services, but he also wants them to fix the payment system. So right now we have big banks that have this just in time, you know, real time uh, payment systems, and it's all privatized. Even the small banks can't access to it. And theoretically, the government is going to be providing this, but they've been really slow. And so uh, Senator Brown really wants, he he doesn't just want these face-to-face services at the post offices, but he wants everybody to be able to access, you know, to know, you know, to to, to access this low-cost, you know, free government-provided payment system. It used to be cash. Increasingly, it's not cash. But everybody who wants to use digital bank, you know, payments, should be able to, and that should be a government service and not something that the big banks make for themselves and everybody else is paying overdraft fees unnecessarily and things like that.
2: that. So there are people who are looking at this and thinking, this is just crazy. You shouldn't be profiting from people accessing and paying for stuff. That's what the people who are buying, you know, that's what, when you buy something, there's a profit there. There shouldn't be a profit just to give someone a profit.
1: No, I, I completely agree. I, I don't even talk about those things. But as we get more and more digital, that means more and more people, you know, businesses are losing out, you know, and, and you know that there's, you know, they take a cut, right? I mean, every time you pay with credit, you, you're you you're actually, you're paying for the service, you know, just for the payment. And so, yeah, there is a problem. And, you know, it goes beyond that. I mean, one of the things, you know, as I think it's also happening in the UK, but I mean, Amazon has just taken over in the United States. And if you think about it, it's like people have a tendency to just say, well, it's okay, for the public sector to do something if it was done historically so that's why we like to emphasize that the postal service has done postal banking it does it in many other countries If you really think about what Amazon does, it's a monopoly and monop, you know, and a monopoly should be public. So if you know, I mean Amazon can sell its own stuff fine, they can deliver their own stuff fine, but they're really providing access to hundreds of thousands of of small sellers. And there's no reason why that should be a private, it's a you know, it's convenient. I use it, I'm ashamed of it. I, I don't like Amazon, and yet I order stuff through Amazon. I'm a busy working mother, and I don't, you know, and but you know this should be a public ser- ser- uh, service, and we actually had before. Um, you know, now we have a, a very problematic leadership at the Postal Service right now. Uh, that you know, Trump appointed postmaster who has scandal after scandal. Uh, before that, though, we had you know the a, a board member who then prior prior to that was um, the uh, oversight person at the Postal Service who had a very you know he's a he's a former military he's a very mainstream. Um, you know, guy who who's worked as, uh, you know, in, in, in government and in the private sector for me. But he said, you know, the, the Postal Service should be looking at things like fresh food delivery because they can go in your house and you trust them when you're gone. They should be looking at, you know, and he had a very expansive view of all the things that would make absolute sense for somebody who is coming to your house every day, who you trust, who's like, you know, what, you know, here a lot of the people especially fedex so ups is another big uh delivery service and they are unionized and i actually used to work for the union that represents those drivers i mean i trust them too because those are good jobs people don't want to lose them but fedex i mean they they those fedex workers are not even considered workers in the united states they've been misclassified as contractors you know you don't want those people in your house i mean i think most of them are perfectly nice people but this is a transient workforce underpaid, desperate workforce. I mean, you don't want them having access to your house or to your mailbox or things like that. So, you know, I think that we should think big and I am not, you know, I I, I do think the private sector does think some things a lot better, but there's, you know, if we're delivering everything, we have this trust and we have this infrastructure, uh, we have the postal, you know, the post office network, we have the postal delivery network and we have trust. We should be, you know, thinking about ways that it makes sense for that, for the consumer, for the public you know, uh, to provide more services, not just postal banking. But postal banking is the most obvious one.
0: Yeah. So it sounds to me as if your current um, uh, postmaster is interested in perhaps um, making it into a private service. Do you think that that's the case? And I think that uh, President Biden is is looking to maybe try and get someone else into that position.
1: Well, uh it's going to be a it's going to be a challenge uh, so the at least we've taken baby steps in that direction president biden has named uh three people to the board and he's going to be naming two new people and there was a fear for a while that he would name inexplicably was going to renominate uh, somebody who's a big business like a private equity democrat uh because who's got a lot of connections in the you know I, I think the democrats are sort of afraid of alienating all the financial you know supporters so they you know he was going to be renominated also The guy had some ties to the union movement, um, but he was a big supporter of the current scandal, you know, the Trump appointee uh, postmaster. So at least that's not happening. But nobody really knows what it will take to get this guy out of there because he has to be removed for cause and nobody can see his contract. I mean, it's the Postal Service, even though it's public in the United States, it's been um, it's. It, it's uh, set up a little bit like a private corporation and that includes you know employment contracts or whatever not being public so that it's very strange um so nobody really but yeah we think that eventually he is going to get the boot oddly enough i don't think that he wants the attention that would come with even though uh president trump former president trump did have these commissions looking into formal privatizing i think a lot of there there's two different kinds of people in the united states who want to privatize the postal service there's the ideologues the libertarian ideologues you know the think tanks and then there's the private corporations. And often uh the private corporations kind of want to do it quietly. They don't really want, you know, they, they they wouldn't mind having the vestige or shell of the public sector doing some of the work and then just, you know, basically eating away at the, at the postal service from the inside. Um, the libertarians are really enamored of like. The, you know of the German model and the English model. They want to, you know, to them it's a name brand. It's like showing, you know, the, you know, they claim that the the rationale for having a public postal service has disappeared. Um and you know they they so and and often the the corporations will support the um you know the libertarian think tanky, you know, ideological stuff. To a point, but there is a tension there because I, the corporations mostly don't want to do this without any attention paid to them. And so our current postmaster, he's not somebody who goes around saying, I want uh, to privatize the Postal Service. He just wants to keep business as usual and expand the outsourcing, the backdoor outsourcing of the Postal Service, which is where he comes from. That was his business before. He, he came from a logistics corporation that did ma- massive business with the Postal uh, Service his whole appointment was very sleazy. I mean, it was not done uh, in any normal fashion and there's no doubt he kept stock in companies. that I mean, it's, it's, he broke all kinds of rules, but there were, you know, they, they would find loopholes. Like they would say, well, you know, he doesn't actually own s- stock in a company that does direct, I mean, you know, there there would be these like sort of one step removed. And So anyhow, he is very, very, very much uh, in the business of trying to help these, uh, upstream uh, outsourcers, uh, but he uh, publicly doesn't espouse uh, wanting to privatize the Postal Service. Also because he's been under the gun. I mean, he's been so unpopular um, the whole time. He doesn't look to make additional enemies. Um, and I, I'd also like to just say uh, that the the thing that's hanged, that has prevented the Postal Service, all the terrible things that have been tried to be done by the Postal Service, what's really helped is having the postal workers unions. And we're, there are several. The two biggest ones are the the ones that represent the clerks and the sorters, the, the American Postal Workers Union, and then also the national uh, the letter carriers. So the unions have really been what has uh, stopped some of the, you know, the worst private, but, you know, again, it also wouldn't be, you know, it, it, it's not been perfect and there are different interests there. And, uh, but it is really important to have institutional bodies that have an incentive to protect the postal service as a as a public service, and that has been what you know. That plus the very the popularity of the postal service, even in uh, what we call red state America, even in the conservative parts of the United States, um, you know, has have protected to date the postal service, and uh, also make me hopeful about postal banking. Um, it's unusual in that sense.
2: Um, when the Brits think about capitalism and the country that is that, that most embraces the capitalist idea we often think of the states and i often i say to people that actually you should look much closer to home and see what the united kingdom's like and this is another perfect example of america hasn't dared to privatize its postal service i think there's only four countries in the world who have privatized the postal service and obviously the united kingdom has to be one of them it was kind of one of the final um, one of the final um, services that that was privatized Um, But it was interesting because what you said there about it being a loved institution, it was in the United Kingdom and still is to an extent a loved institution, but that didn't stop us. And I liked your point about the power of the unions. I don't think it's a coincidence that our unions were watered down um, over over a couple of decades to allow us to do things like removing the postal service. Um, But my last question for you was around um, the kind of PR for post office and, and, and banking and um, Wells Fargo used to have a really good reputation in the states up and until up until a few years ago when it was caught out you know and, and just a completely nefarious scheme to defraud and um, how is the, how is the post office regarded in terms of it's I said you were trusted but is that really measurable and how it's trusted as an institution to look after your money compared to the the private banks?
1: Yeah, no, it it is amazing. Um, I mean, the post office is year after year after year shows up like 90 percent approval rating by America's like highest possible, you know, and, and, you know, approval rating and very much uh, across, um, you know, uh, you know, it's not political. I mean, it's like people, you know, and it, and ironically, again, I mentioned this is that it's very, very, very popular in rural America. So if you're in rural America, you probably, you know, you're a little small town, you don't have a pharmacy, you don't have, so you're getting your medicine, you know, you're, you're getting, you know, from the the post and, you know, even though the postal service has been shrunk by this, what I call the backdoor outsourcing, like, you you know, it's, it, it, uh, over years, it's still, you know, the face of American government door to door people know their post you know uh you know the, the the postal carrier people know the clerk at the store i mean you know i mentioned the, you know the the you know the the, the you know that the, the, i you know i know my postal clerk. so it is really important you know schools the military Social Security and the Postal Service are all very popular because people interact with them or they they know, you know, or they, they view it, it's sort of the patriotic part of government. So even though Americans tend to hate government, in the abstract, they have this idea that there's some big government out there that's wasting money giving it to foreign countries or, you know, because we don't like, you know, we're very insular, um, you know, whatever. But when it comes to face-to-face with services that they know about, you know, their kids in the military or they're, you know, they're, uh, you know, they, they love government. And this is one of the reasons why the ideologues, you know, the think tanks that really, you know, are very adamant about wanting to to privatize it is that they don't, it, it is very popular, it does make people hesitate about saying anti-government things. And actually, most government services are very popular, most of the government, these services that I mentioned that are very popular, again, we also have Medicare, which is the public, um, you know, healthcare for seniors, Medicaid, which used to be kind of the I hate to say a bastard stepchild but you know it was the underfunded for low-income people but now it's it, it covers a lot more people also very popular social security very popular Pub, you know public schools are very popular everybody americans tend to dislike government in the abstract but love it in person and at the top 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 of that you know, love of their actual services is the Postal Service. And again, very much in rural areas. So you have strange bedfellows of people defending the Postal Service. And it often includes maybe not the most crazy wing of the Republican Party, but the, you know, the, you know, your congressman from Wyoming and places like that, you know, they care because otherwise, they if the post office shuts down in a small town, or they're going to hear about it
2: immediately. That's really interesting. So, In the middle of the public who love the post office, love the postal service, and then on the other side, you've got the the, the multinationals or the companies who want to privatize that. In the middle, you have the media. And I'm interested to see what's your perception of how the media covers this battle, because I just wanted to give you one uh, quote from the TSB story um, that um, Karen started the show with. And um, uh, the, the headline that accompanied these bank closures it says, TSB announces closure of Scottish branches next year. Uh, here's a list of locations. The bank will be closing nine Scottish branches due to the rise in online banking. Now, that just proves to me that the media is just taking the narrative, because that could say for a desire to pay more returns to shareholders. But clearly, the media is taking a role in this debate. Have you got any thoughts on, on that position in, in, in the States?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the media was very much complicit earlier on about painting the postal service as being financially troubled. So this was again after the two thousand and six, so two thousand and six act that limited what the postal service could do, um, and did all you know all, all kinds of uh, you know it 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 created for a you know a decade plus this idea that the postal service was you know somehow. Inefficient and losing money, you know, bleeding red as, and and instead of you know me- mentioning that the you know the postal service would have been profitable and was doing you know super high tech, super you know you know was was very streamlined, doing all these things, they would just focus on it's losing money, even though the only reason it was losing money was because of this onerous requirement of very quickly pre-funding retiree health benefits. So that it was very much complicit and lazy reporting and bad reporting. Um, Since then, what happened is then we had a president who was very anti-media and, you know, scandal after scandal after scandal and attacking the media. And he appointed this scandalous postmaster, you know. So the, the coverage of the Postal Service recently has been much more positive. I mean, we have a good reporter, like in my local paper, The Washington Post, you know, who follows it closely. The other thing is that I think the media has realized that the Postal Service is because it's very popular and because there are a lot of postal workers. I mean, it's a huge employer. Right. And these people are paying attention. I mean, Postal Union activists are the best people. I mean, it's just great talk, you know, you, you have really strong advocacy, you know, people are paying attention. So even as our media has been gutted, and I, I love the fact that you guys have this program, but I mean, we are, you know, you know our for example, the New York Times labor reporter, who's great, you know, left, you know, I mean, it's kind of like the, the, the people with specific expertise and beats has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking as, you know, people, fewer people subscribe to newspapers, fewer, you know, so we, we have a media problem in the United States, and we have a, problem of expertise and people of reporters who know a beat in something in depth. Um, recently, I would say that coverage of the postal service has been relatively good only because again, uh, it was a scandal. It was a scandal around, you know, the, the guy, uh, the, the current postmaster, having been appointed in this irregular fashion. It's a scandal. The fact that that he had all these conflicts of interest is a scandal that they were trying to scare people from using um, mail mail voting in in ahead of the presidential election. Uh, Even though it ended up working out okay, there's no doubt that they were trying to Fearmonger around that and get people to not use the mail, and therefore hoping that the people who have more difficulty uh, voting in person would would just somehow that day would happen and the weather would be bad or the buses wouldn't get there or whatever, and you'd have drop off among Democratic voters. So there was this concerted effort to make mail voting look bad. You know, he played into that. He there was huge mail slowdowns. Now he's got a new 10-year plan that's that's a service cut just slowing down the mail intentionally you guys have overnight mail we have now have like it's not considered late if you're you know for some parts of the country to the other if it's like four days later i mean it's you know this is first class mail so there's been you know because he's been so scandal prone uh we have had i think decent media coverage lately but i think the damage was done with all this bad coverage of the supposed inefficiency of the of the postal service
0: yeah that's definitely an issue that um, (laughs) I hope that um, perhaps this program can do something to address.
1: Yeah, so, and I, I'm um, I'm, delighted I'm delighted to have learned about you guys. I didn't know about you, Scotnomics, and so I just think it's so great. We need something like that in the United States, and uh, I'm definitely going to let people know about it. And uh, and you know, thrilled that you guys are doing this, and 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 also the in, the depth with which you've yeah, done it. I've I, been yeah. on a few radio shows in the United States, public radio, where they talk about things at length, but mostly you know it is a bit superficial. It's like you know, it's you've got a two minute. Something. So you guys are covering all the different angles and you know, not just on this issue, but on a lot of other issues. And I think it's fantastic. So I'm very excited to to have learned about Scotonomics and I will be paying attention from now on. So
2: oh Monique you've just given us a wonderful testimonial. I, I feel like sending you some money in the post, but I know it wouldn't get there, you know, with all the problems <laughs> that we've got. But that, that honestly, that was perfect. That means that honestly that means so much to us because there's so much that we yeah. can learn in Scotland from from it from from across the globe. And and what we find is that Scotland just looks south to England and continually just compares itself. And when you're comparing yourself to a country that's that that that's on the extremes of a neoliberal economy, then the things that you want to do seem so incredible. But when you look across the world and you see other countries, and you know America being this prime example of the country that you think is the most capitalist, but it's not got a privatized and um, postal service. You know, these are things that we think are really important. So we really appreciate your time uh, to come on and and, and explain that what's a, a universal issue around affordable access to finance and, and to banking services. That
1: America has become increasingly politically polarized so that even though, yeah, I mean, it's incredibly scary what's going on in the United States and what the the, the mistaken beliefs people have about, you know, COVID or, you know, I mean, just, you know, the, the craziness has, has floated to the top and we're all seeing it. At the same time, the, the Democratic Party has become much more progressive. And so things like postal banking are actually more likely to get support than they would have. I mean, President Biden supports postal banking. So there is, you know, on one hand, from my perspective at, at, at this progressive think tank, you know, there's, you know, it's scary to look in one direction, but it's hopeful to look in another direction because at least the, the, demo, the you know, we have, we have a largely two-party system, but the left flank of the Democratic Party has really sh- moved it. To to be much more uh, visionary and much more you know what's what's in the realm of possibility we call it the Overton window has shifted mm-hmm. at least among Democrats to the left even as parts of the country have gone to you know fascism frankly I mean just crazy crazy and so you know that's dis- disheartening but the progressive you know and, and and we're and postal banking is an example of that I think postal banking you know, has his, has a shot now. And I wouldn't have thought so 20 years ago, so. No.
2: Well, 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 we've had that shift to the right, but we haven't had any kind of anything to anything to shout about on the left. We have a little bit more in Scotland, but in the UK, I mean, our, our, our two parties are, are solidly neo- ne- neoliberal, solidly. And, you know, it's a kind of cigarette paper between, between the two of them. And a lot of the conversations you're having on fiscal deficits and investing in Green New Deal and stimulus packages, that conversation isn't even happening in the UK, never mind people having having different views about it. It's not even on the agenda. So we are way behind you in terms of how you can use your currency and how you can use your economy and the real resources to create a better society, not even on the agenda. So, you know, it's, it's, it is. it is And in Europe, especially with the German government that's just been elected and France and, and Italy, they're all talking about fiscal stimuluses and green new deals and investment the UK. Not a people.
1: That's why Scotland matters, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, because you guys are the you're the left flank of the you know. I, I mean, I lived in in England briefly when Thatcher was in office. I mean, I'm old, you know, and uh, you know, I, I mean, Scotland was, you know, you guys did didn't pay the the, the poll tax. I mean, you know, and since then you've been. I I know that your hands are tied, but you you also show that there's a different model and different support for things. I don't know, you know, I don't follow it that closely, but I do know that that Scotland is much more progressive in general than. Um, you know, and, and sort of, so I that's why what you guys do matters is that it is a different model. So um, really?
2: I've, I have for, got one question though, just, I know, I know you're not in depth knowledge of Scotland, but it would be great just to say, just to say, you know, from an economics perspective and what you know about Scotland, do you think that Scotland would be able to survive or would it thrive as an independent nation? Given
1: the Brexit craziness, uh, that certainly is an additional uh, argument for uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Scottish nationalism. <laughs>
2: well well, Monique thanks so much for your time we really appreciate it and we're really pleased you were able to join us thanks very much
1: this was a real pleasure and I look forward to uh, hearing more about what you guys are doing so I'm gonna I don't know subscribe or whatever it is that I need to do to make sure (laughs) I hear about your the topics you cover so
2: thank Uh, you well we'll make sure we drop your date when we're going to go live with the show but thanks thanks again. again
1: okay thank you thanks Monique thank you